Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Hey there, this is Nicole, the host of the Found Down podcast. Ooh, this episode's such a good one. I interview... Emily Scott, about her time going over to Sierra Leone, working with Ebola patients, which is nuts. Um, I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. But you know, before we get into it, I always have a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for listening and tuning into the Foundown podcast. This show wouldn't be there if you weren't here. So I just truly appreciate you showing up week after week and tuning in. I really, again, couldn't do this show without you. So I just want to let you know how grateful I am for you tuning in. And if you haven't gone over to Unwound Retreats, that's my self-care for healthcare business where we practice self-care and travel together, go over to Unwind Retreats and check it out and get on the email list. There's some exciting stuff happening in the future. So if you want to stay in the loop, go over to unwindretreats.com and see what is in store. I'm so excited for something that's going to be announced in a couple weeks. So um, stay tuned to go over to Unwind Retreats and sign up for the email list. Now I want to talk about the sponsor of Found Down. That's Nicole Kupchik, CNS and educator. She has a business, NicoleKupchikConsulting.com, where she offers nurses courses and books that empower nurses through education. You want to check her courses out. She actually has a CE accredited live webinar course coming up in November and December of 2021. That's a CCRN and PCCN certification review course. She'll go through all kinds of information, such as cardiovascular review, hemodynamic review, pulmonary review, I mean, all basically all the systems uh, in human body, so that's relevant to your practice as a healthcare provider. You're going to want to check this out. You can get CEs for this. Also, she's a really fantastic teacher. She's current, she's funny, um, and I promise you, you'll learn a lot. And it's actually really empowering to get your certification. And a lot of hospitals pay you a little bit more once you do get certified. So there's a benefit for you, not only to your practice, but also a tiny financial benefit. Like where I work, we get, I think it's like $1.25 an hour extra. And also, you know, you have this great foundation. So go over to NicoleCupcheConsulting.com and use the coupon code FOUNDDOWN20 at checkout to get 20% off. That's right. Go over to NicoleCupcheConsulting.com and use the coupon code FOUNDDOWN20. That's all lowercase to get 20% off at checkout. All right. Without further ado, here is the awesome interview with Emily Scott about her time working with Ebola patients in Sierra Leone. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and I am so stoked because I have Emily Scott back on the show. You know, she was just on the show a couple weeks ago, uh, and she is a labor and delivery nurse. She's also a science communicator through her Instagram account, Two Dusty Travelers. She's also a travel entrepreneur and blogger. Check out what she's doing. Um, but she also heeded the call to work in Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak. And so I'm so excited to talk to Emily about this topic and to learn all about Ebola and what that experience was like. But you know, before we do any of that, how are you, Emily? I'm okay. I feel, I feel like my mood the last 18 months has gone up and down as cases go up and down. And now even though cases are still like way too fucking high, that the curve looks nice. It's kind of coming. So I'm like feeling a little like I can breathe a little easier. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice. I just saw that the what we hit like 89,000 cases yesterday in the New York Times. And like we haven't been in the 80, 80 <laughs> yeah. th- we haven't been in the 80s per day for 80,000 cases per day for a while. So I, yeah. I feel you. I'm, I'm looking, f- I'm excited. Yeah. I'm trying to like plan a little travel for like, hopefully get a little break before another winter surge. I'm like, let's do some fun stuff before cases explode again. Or maybe they won't. I don't, who knows at this point. Yeah, I know. I know. If we had a future uh, crystal ball, um, can I just ask you, where would you go? Where are you thinking of going? This is so fun. Well, I mean, (laughs) we're, we're just going, we have a Thanksgiving trip planned to Palm Springs, um, just to get some sun. Um, cause we didn't want to plan anything. I don't know, out of the country or too far, or just because we were like, I don't know where we're going to be. And we're going with my mom and I'm still very protective of my mom at this point. We lost my dad, like right before COVID started. And so I'm like, I have, I'm like, you're in a bubble. Like, so I'm I'm like, we're all on a very short plane ride. I will watch you the entire time. Make sure your N95 is on <laughs> and go to Palm Springs. And it'll be very safe. and like stay in an Airbnb, get some sun, you know, but I think we're getting to a point now where it's like, yeah, I've got to figure out how to start feeling better about traveling a little farther afield. And yeah. yeah. I have some feelers out for maybe some global health work early next year, but I'm just like, who knows what, you know, things are going to look like in January, but that's my hope. Yeah. It's so hard to plan. Yeah. <laughs> So hard to plan. Yeah. <laughs> and I just took six yeah. women over to Morocco yeah. and got COVID, but it still, yeah. I was like, I, should I be doing this in the middle of a pandemic? But you know what? Yeah. We all, we all survived um, yeah. and no one got COVID. So that was the most important thing. Um, okay. So before we get into how you got involved with Ebola and working with Ebola patients in West Africa. Can you talk about Ebola? Can you give us a little bit of a rundown of what is the virus? I mean, we all saw it in the news. 
Yeah. I don't think I learned about it in nursing school. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully not. Cause we're in a total waste of time. Like if it's, you know, the, the fear of Ebola in the States is like way overblown. Like it's never going to be something that ever is a major problem here in the States. Um, so it would be a waste of time to learn about it in nursing school in the U S. Um, but yeah, it's a like hemorrhagic virus, um, and has a really, terrible mortality rate. You were looking at like 50 to 90% mortality though. I think a lot of that is because, you know, it's generally found in more um, rural places in Africa. So like, you know, mortality rate, if you are treated early in the U S is quite good actually. Um, But yeah, I think our, the first outbreak was in like DRC in uh, democratic Republic of the Congo in the seventies in the mid seventies. And we've had like several outbreaks since then, but the, the big one was the West African one, um, which we never had seen Ebola in West Africa before. So it was a surprise and it hit a, um, a city of highly populated area and it just spreads like wildfire. So um, then you're kind of off the races and it kind of hit the, hit the world news and suddenly everybody cared because it was this huge thing that was spreading so quickly. And, and it's, it's really, I mean, it's a very scary disease. It's scary looking. There's lots of like bleeding and um, you essentially die. I mean, it's like a cytokine storm. It's very much like dying of, um, you know, septic shock. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's, it is not a pretty thing to see, but it's also not as horrific as I think that the news makes it look like people are just like pouring blood out their eyeballs. And like, it's not that bad, <laughs> but it's not pretty. <laughs> Somewhere yeah. in between. Yeah. Um, when you say like, 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 it liquefies your organs. And I'm like, well, not really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So uh, you said it spreads like wildfire and is it? it's in like, because people are, it's all in their mucus. What is it? How are they spreading it? Yeah, it, it's contact. And this is what's been so interesting. Like when COVID started, I'm on my hospital's biocontainment team. So we got the first COVID patient in the US. And I was, my mindset was like Ebola, 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 which is so um, like fomite transmitted. You're just obsessed with everything you touch. And like the, the most dangerous part of treating a, a Ebola patient is doffing and getting out of the red zone to get all your stuff off without getting anything on you just because the tiniest little bit if you get it in your mucous membranes is like it doesn't take much at all um well yeah it's it's yeah so COVID is not like that at all right like it's really not transmitted I mean you can I'm sure you can get a case transmitted through fomite transmission but it's really much more airborne um in which like sucks in a whole different way. But um, uh, yeah, so in a place where, you know, like it got into this big city and it got into the capital of Sierra Leone and got into kind of like the slums. So in a place where people are living in very close quarters, there's not running water, soap, you know, if you are in a place where healthcare systems don't have access to gloves, that's it game over like the whole hospital is getting it all the healthcare workers are getting it everyone in the slum is getting it it's it's just boom and Um, then there goes your ability to treat and care for anybody for anything yep absolutely which yeah finally we're seeing the u.s as well um but uh but yeah once once you know once we got that patient in the u.s it's a completely different situation because we have gloves, running water, infection, you know, uh, healthcare workers that are like well tra- uh, trained in infection prevention. And um, it really doesn't spread. And there's like 
the two nurses that caught it from that one patient in Texas are the only two cases of Ebola ever being spread on U.S. soil. And that was because they didn't have the right PPE on. Like, there's no reason it should ever spread in the U.S., basically. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm just thinking about what we did. Not that there was anything wrong with it. I think, you know, it was good practice for what we did in our facility. Um, but like, I mean, that's what it was happening. I think they were all, all over the United States. Like everyone was like building like a containment yeah. place for yeah. patients, but we never, we never saw them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, when, where were you or what were you doing when you were like, I want to be taking care of people with that. I mean, I am a nerd, so I always just thought Ebola was interesting and it's, it's scary and, you know, like it's, you know, only, only in the, you know, it starts in these like, you know, rural community, like kind of, um, you know, communities in, in Africa that are kind of like near, you know, cause it's, you know, spread through, uh, bats most likely so it's usually like these communities that are very cut off and these viruses these uh, outbreaks usually just kind of burn themselves out because these people are pretty remote so um you know it's not something you'll ever think you're ever going to get a chance to see but i'd read about it um and then i remember because the outbreak was in the news and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and um i was at that point like wanting to do um global health work but like <laughs> i remember my hospital wouldn't let me I had an uh, assignment planned in Kenya and my hospital said I, if I went, I had to skip work for 21 days when I got home. Cause that's the incubation period for Ebola. I'd take 21 days off unpaid. And I was like, but like, you know, Kenya is on the other side of the continent from West Africa. Like it could not be farther away. <laughs> um, so anyway, it was on, I was kind of reading about it. It was on my mind. And then I remember being in the car and, um, at home and like listening to an NPR article or an NPR story um, talking about how like West Africans were um, dying because they didn't have gloves and they didn't have people trained in infection prevention and they were just overwhelmed and they just needed like trained bodies, like anybody. Um, it was just really getting desperate. And I went home and Googled immediately, like who's, who's hiring. Um, Cause I had kind of assumed up until that point that they had needed, you know, highly trained people and then like infection prevention specialists or right. disease specialists. And when I kind of heard that, I was like, well, I, you know, I can do that. I can, you know, I, um, uh, yeah. So I went, I just went online and Googled and, um, ended up applying with partners in health and with international medical corps. And then like tried to get in the back door with some friends who were with, um, doctors without borders, but they weren't taking any, um, first time people for doctors without borders for <laughs> Ebola. They were like, we got to know you. <laughs> so That um, makes sorry. sense. Yeah, no, yeah. no noobs. noobs yeah. <laughs> but that, I mean, it was one of the interesting things about that, about that situation was that they were so desperate for people, um, that there were, like my, my team had multiple people who it was like their first time on any kind of global health assignment. Maybe some person who was their first time out of the U S and I was like, it, it was kind of my first red flag that I was like, this may not be a super sustained situation. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely, and, and for me, I had wanted to get into more disaster response, but it's really hard to get into disaster response without, having experience in disaster response. So like, how do you get that first, 
experience. Um, so I think for a lot of people, Ebola was it. You could, they would take it would, <laughs> it would take a lot of people that didn't have experience. So you got accepted. You before you go over there, what were what were was your family thinking? Or your friends? Did you tell them or? And- yeah. I told them, I remember telling my mom when I applied and I was like, don't worry about it. I don't, I'm just applying. I don't have to go. Who know, You know, I probably won't even get it. Just like I'm applying, whatever. And I'll just, you know, I'll, I can decide the day I get on the plane. I don't have to do it, you know? Um, but once I got it accepted and it just kept getting, you know, the outbreak kept getting worse and worse. And um, yeah, once I got accepted, it kind of felt like if I didn't go, the only reason was because I was scared and I, I knew I had what I, the skills that were needed to help. And I was like, well, I probably won't be able to live with myself if I don't go. Um, so <laughs> I just kind of did a cost benefit and I was like, you know, even now looking back, like, no, there's only, I think five, six healthcare workers, American healthcare workers that call Ebola. Most of them were early on mm-hmm. before they kind of knew what they were doing. They all got back home. They all lived. Um, so I was like, you know, I'm probably not going to die, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, so you, you get over there. What is that experience like? So first of all, like how long were you there and where were you? And, um, what was like the, what was it like? Yeah. Um, well, we spent a week in Boston at Partners in Health headquarters training, which was fascinating and, and great. Um, and then I remember it was like February. So we had all of our winter clothes. And it was like snow, that, that snowmageddon week. I'll never forget it. We were like walking to the headquarters and there was snow up to our heads. And the last night we all ran to FedEx and put all of our winter clothes in boxes and shipped them home and then ran back to the hotel and like whatever in t-shirts because we knew we were going to Sierra Leone where it was 80 degrees and we didn't, you know, I yeah. didn't unpack. I was like carry on only because if I, I will lose this bag. I just know I will. we like went through three different countries to get there. And I'm like, I'm losing this bag. It's never leaving my hands. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah. So, you know, the, when you immediately step off the plane and free town Sierra Leone, like, I mean, the first thing you do before you like get because you walk across the tarmac and before you enter the airport there's like all these public health signs with um like pictures of ebola symptoms you know so that they're more easy for folks who can't read so there's like these illustrations of people vomiting and like diarrhea and you're like okay and the first thing to do is check your temperature before you go in any building anywhere so it's very like you're like oh this is this is getting real um so yeah we kind of uh hit the ground running and um, had training with a whole huge cohort of Sierra Leonean um, nurses, which was awesome. Um, they're incredible because, you know, we were there. Mine was supposed to be a six-week assignment and they like, you know, the Sierra Leone nurses don't go home. Like they are there. They have to stick, at, stick it out and do this and watch their country falling apart. And we like come in for six weeks and think we're badasses and like they're yeah. – they're incredible. Um, anyway, so yeah, I was supposed to be there for six weeks and then, um, I don't even remember um, partway, partway through one of my cohort caught Ebola and we had a whole, that's a whole story <laughs> unto itself. Shoot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's a long story, but I, 
it was an experience that definitely taught me even like the biggest names in global health, Doctors Without Borders, or I went with Partners in Health who was like widely beloved. Um, like they are not infallible. And um, I think for, for PIH in particular, they normally do more like development long-term work. And so they were new to this disaster response thing. And um, yeah, I ended up, you know, a, f- a few weeks in once one, one of my team caught Ebola and um, there was such, it kind of blew up and there was a situation where they were like, if people want to go, they can go. Um, and I was like, I'm out. Cause I, it, the, the, you know, where I ended up on, I just felt that safety protocols weren't being followed and you can kind of get away with that and kind of justify it for a certain amount of time. And then when your friend catches Ebola and is medevaced home, you're like, Oh shit. Like, wow. I think the risk benefit scenario, the balance just shifted. And I'm like, no, I think I'm out. I think, I'm, I think, you know, yeah, you're not going to take, cause I, you know, I ended up on a different, in a different unit across the country from the rest of my cohort. Cause I was doing like obstetric um, and an Ebola obstetric unit. And, you know, they were focusing all this attention on where my friend caught Ebola and rightly so, but then I'm on the other side of the country going, Hey, 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 we have the same problems here. And like, we weren't really getting along. Yeah. Was it, is it, you know, I mean, you know how well we, the world that we work in, um, was it, did it just feel like people were being kind of sloppy? Um, cause yeah. And and frankly, I see that at work sometimes. Absolutely, you know, where people are like, "Oh, laxadaisical now yeah. with the yeah. COVID precautions," and you're Absolutely. like, "Hell no, dude! You like, where's yeah. your PPE partner? You know?" Yeah, anyway. I, yeah, it was very much that, and like, and that's one of the reasons that like expat teams were supposed to do like one month, six weeks, nine weeks at the most stints was like, you can't help but get tired, lackadaisical. Um, you just get a little, like you said, a little sloppy for whatever reason, whether it really is you think you're immortal or you just are tired or whatever. I mean, it takes, it takes probably 20 to 30 minutes of like very painstaking <laughs> movements to get out of your suit and you know it's really easy to mess up so yeah you were we were supposed to only be on these like shorter stints and then if, if you wanted to extend you could but you had to take 21 days off and then you could come back and do another round um but yeah yeah <laughs> i was definitely seeing people rushing through doffing and yeah what, rig- what rigged me out is we had i remember my clinical lead at the time, whatever, I think this is fine to say it's been a long time, but I remember my clinical lead at the time and I was sharing an apartment with her telling me that either she had gotten sick or her previous roommate had gotten sick and they gotten food poisoning, which like from the symptoms, there's no way to know if you have food poisoning. If you have some, if you're, if your roommate, (laughs) when you're working on an Ebola unit gets vomiting and diarrhea, like they need to go to an Ebola unit to get ruled out. They have to like that. And that's protocol. You have to. And she, they just started, she just started an IV. I can't remember if it was my lead that got sick or if it was the roommate, but one of them started an IV on the other and just gave my IV fluids like in the room. 
And I'm like, cool. So if she had had Ebola, you would then have Ebola. Like, it's just, I was like, this is, and you're our clinical lead. Like, this is not okay. So so what kind of happened was that when my, our friend tested positive, then all of a sudden, all the stuff that people had been kind of hiding, not hiding, but just been going, oh, it's fine. It's no big deal. All of a sudden out of the woodwork, everybody had a story. Everybody was like, I have diarrhea. I had this, someone had a needle stick in the red zone and they told them they didn't need to go home or like all these blah, 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 just kind of started everywhere. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> you're, and you're like, right. Because you're fraternizing. Yeah. Fraternizing with all the folks that you're in PPE with. Mm-hmm. So. And we like, when I first got to the country, we, we kind of went out to this rural area, rural area and were trained and stayed on, in this like big kind of tent city thing run by a Danish um, relief organization. And those are only jobs to like set up the places where the health workers live. Um, and I remember when we got there that like the partners in health clinicians kind of had a, uh, <laughs> were known for like being too touchy feely. And they're like, you guys are always hugging each other. And like, it's not good. Like, stop it. <laughs> So then when one of us got Ebola, they were like, well, <laughs> it's all that hugging and touching. Yeah, like, stop it. Because <laughs> like, then you have to drag in everybody who has touched or hugged or shook hands with the guy who has Ebola, right? And they all have to be tested and isolated and medevaced home. And like, it's a whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. also then all, right, exactly. It's just a yeah. cascade. Yeah. Of it was a disaster. <laughs> wow. Wow. So that's insane. See, when um can we just go back to the to PPE and everything everything um what was it like to get in and out of the rooms and what were you wearing yeah it's just looking at a photo this morning to refresh my memory it's a face mask which doesn't need to be I don't remember being fitted for an N95 doesn't have to be because it's not airborne um but a face mask and then like a plastic face shield and then the full suit with the hood um, and then a plastic apron over the top of that inner gloves, outer gloves, um, like gum boots and shoe covers. That's it. That's a lot. Now I was actually looking through your, um, Instagram highlights, <laughs> your Ebola stuff. And you said something like you couldn't be in those suits for more than two hours. Cause you would overheat. Yeah. What was, did you experience that? <laughs> I, always joke that I was like built for this work because I'm always cold. So I was actually just quite like fine. I remember like when we were training, we did like a whole, they had a mock Ebola unit where we had to like go in and treat patients and like to see if everybody could handle it on like the first day when it was so hot. Um, and then all these, you know, there's no air conditioning. Like our, the, the main Ebola, you know, where we worked was like a converted school. We were like the, the patients were in classrooms and, um, yeah. So, but I remember coming out of like that first training and someone being like, when's your, when's your round? When are you going in? And I was like, I just got out. They're like, but you're not, when you should come out like sweating and like your, your scrubs are all, you know, soaked and they're like, why are you dry? Um, so I don't know. I, I did okay. But we also had like some, we had, um, these, uh, cooling vests that just had big pockets in the front and the back and you could put ice packs in them. So some people went in, in those, um, like at the very underneath their PPE, um, 
but yeah, generally you're only allowed to be in PPE for two hours. Cause it's just, it's just too, I mean, even if I was like, I feel fine. They're like, nope, you, you're done. You have to go out. Cause how are we, someone passes out. How are you going to get them out of their PPE? Like you, you, safely, you, there's no way. Yeah. That's yeah. so true. Yeah. Um, and speaking of getting out, how, what was that supposed to be like every time? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the spot where if you're going to catch Ebola, that's it getting your stuff off, um, your suit off. Um, so yeah, you get, first you get sprayed down. They have like sprayers that wait like in the red zone side of the Dauphin area. They're all on full PPE too. They have like these packs of chlorine on their back with like little spray guns and this, they spray you all down with chlorine. Um, and then there's like these series of buckets of chlorine and you go one by one and like each piece of PPE that you take off, then you have to wash your hands for one full minute with the chlorine and that like all these perfect steps, they have very specific Ebola hand wash that I will always do. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's like top gloves off, wash your hands for full minutes. And I'm going to forget the process, but like hood off and wash your hands for full minutes. And then, you know, your every little piece that comes off, you wash your hand for one full minute in between and like piece by piece by piece, it ends up taking quite a long time. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then someone sprays your boots on the way out and then you're supposed to take your boots off and like, they all sit in the sun because the sun kills it. So they all sit in the sun until they're all for a certain amount of time and you can reuse your boots. Um, then it's another hand, once you're out, it's another hand wash with chlorine for uh, a minute and then a hand wash with soap and water for a minute. And then you're not supposed to touch your face for 30 minutes, which like, is so hard. If you are like first, a first training day, they had someone watch us all. We were sitting in the classroom at the end of like half an hour. They were like, you all touched your face this many hundreds of times. And we were like, oh, shit. Oh, <laughs> we're my watching us. Yeah. That's so. crazy. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm you just thinking about the day you like do around, get out, chug down a bunch of water or like oral rehydration solution and then eat and then pee and then do it again. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I was just thinking about your patients. So yeah. I, I, who you're taking care of, if they're like, after you do that and then they're like, oh, I need something. And you're like, um, sorry, that's so well for a while. You yeah, Truly. And it's, it's really, it's really, I mean, I think this is a huge reason why like my friend who got Ebola and was medevaced home, despite being very critically ill, almost dying, lived because he had round the clock. I mean, he had his own nurses, his own room round the clock, like video, I believe in his room. So they needed something, he'd either go in, you know. Um, whereas these patients, like, they're in there alone for for long periods of time. And if something goes wrong, we don't have any way of, of no, we can't see them. Um, they get care when we're doing around and that's it. Um, and like when I was there it was towards the tail because I broke my wrist during the process of applying, which sucked. And I was like, I don't want to go. Oh, so, man. I, so I got there during the kind of tailish end when we didn't, I mean, there were, I don't remember, maybe 20 patients, but like at the early, early on, there would have been a hundred or more. And I just remember thinking, how did the, how did they do it? They might, I mean, I, I don't know how they possibly, could even begin to give any kind of care with that many patients and how fast you have to do get in and out of there. Like, yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the pathophysiology? Like you're, you're probably these 
folks are, he said that it's like they're maybe having like a cytokine storm. So this is a sort of SIRS, um, you know, inflammatory response. And, um, and they're, they're like probably what vasodilated and they're losing all kinds of bodily fluids. Yeah. Fluids was the huge thing. You can't, there's just no way to keep up with the amount of fluids that they're losing. Um, I mean, and really, especially in our, um, in, in Sierra Leone and West Africa at the time, like there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, like you probably know more, would know more about the pathophysiology than me because we weren't doing anything super high level, nothing that we would resemble intensive care we didn't have, I mean, we're literally in a school. There's no electricity. There's no running water. Like, wow. You know, I don't have an IV. We don't have an IV pump. So you go in, well, there was electricity. <laughs> I remember there was electricity because I did a night, I did, I did a night shift round my last training day. And I remember being in the unit at night and the electricity cut off. Oh, shoot. <laughs> it was like, I remember being like, and not, not as a statement of like, against the patients, but I remember being like, this is like a zombie movie. Like now I need to get out of here and I need none of these people to fucking touch me because <laughs> I can't see. And if someone they're delirious and if someone rips my suit game, you know, like game over, like not game over, like I die, but if you have an exposure, they pretty much are going to send you home. So, yeah. and I was like, I don't want to get sound, you know? Um, so yeah, that was fun. And we were like, okay, everybody stop what you're doing immediately and walk towards the door. Um, and that, yeah, it's a situation like that where you're caring for a patient and you're like, well, I have to stop. I have to stop everything I'm doing and just leave. Like, yeah. Um, which I think was a, to be on a total tangent, a mindset that I got used to doing that. And then when COVID hit, I'm like, this is the mindset we need to be in now. And still there are nurses that still see like, especially ER nurses arguing, like if I'm resuscitating someone, I'm not going to stop just because blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't see it that way. Like I see it as you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. And if you're a hero right now, then we lose a nurse, not that you die, but then you're out for weeks at a time or whatever. But like, you know, we actually need nurses. So you need to take care of yourself and there's no emergency in a pandemic. You just, I know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, but that was like, so drilled into me during bullet. They were like, we're not doing CPR. We're not doing like, no, 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 no. Um, anyway. So yeah. So anyway, love, love care. Yeah. No, we would go into the unit. Um, and it was like a big classroom with like, you know, um, beds lined up against the walls, maybe 10 patients in this big classroom. Um, and we would just go around first thing and hook everybody up to a liter of fluid. Like there's no IV pump to just like run it as fast as you can. So go around first thing, hook everybody up and then do everything else you need to do. Clean people up, give them like, we didn't really have much, you know, like Tylenol. Um, what were we doing for pain? Uh, I think you were doing Toradol for pain. Um, you know, giving Zofran or anything. Yeah. Zofran. Yeah. Yeah. Some for nausea. Um, if you could get them to eat, um, yeah. Uh, anti-malarials, antibiotics for secondary infections. Um, and then by the time you've done that, you got to go. So then you just go back around and unhook everybody because they're delirious. So if you leave them hooked up to their fluids, they'll rip them out. So you, you just try to get as many fluids as you can in during your round and then you go back through around and unhook everyone. And, yeah. you know, the next round does it again. Um, all we're really trying to do is keep people alive long enough, hopefully for their own immune, immune systems to fight it off, which it's just a, it's just luck. <laughs> really? So were you 
seeing folks die then regularly? Yeah, I was in our main Ebola treatment unit for three days for, of training with like the whole team and um, all the patients I saw there died. Um, whether when I, either while I was there or I found out later. Um, and then my, like once I was trained, you know, they split us all off into different places. Um, but I got sent back to the Capitol to work in the holding unit for, um, pregnant women. Um, and that was, I mean, that was definitely better mortality rate wise because not everybody necessarily had Ebola. We were, we were treating them all like they did because they had to get, I mean, we can get into this. They had to get ruled out for Ebola in order to get into the main hospital to like get treatment for their obstetric situation. Oh. Um, but, but I mean, pregnant people with Ebola, the mortality rate is really, really bad. They mostly die. The babies always die. Um, I think, in the last couple of years, they've had a couple of successful births um, to mothers who had had Ebola with a new treatment. Um, but at that point, when I was there, they had never had a baby live after the mom had had Ebola and the moms usually don't either. Um, so yeah, it's not great. Yeah, no, that doesn't sound great. Um, the what kind of treatment was it like an antiviral? Cause it's a, it's a virus. Ebola is a virus. Mm -hmm. Right. So when, do you know if it was like an antiviral? I don't know the, the treat, they only have a new a treatment since like it was developed at long after I was there. So they have a couple of treatments I think now and a vac definitely a vaccine. Um, so oh, now there's an Ebola vaccine? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, and it's like, it's, it's great. Like, the last couple, we've had a couple of Ebola outbreaks in 2021 and they're like 12 people, 20 people. Like they have a new case. They have, when they identify a case, then like the WHO or whoever goes in and does like ring vaccination. So they vaccinate all of the contacts of that case and all the contacts of those contacts. And it like works like a charm. It just stops it. It's great. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's so great. Yeah. It's awesome. Imagine vaccines yeah. working. Imagine, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's like not. I, I, I mean, I can't imagine a situation where I'll ever, where there will ever be a big outbreak like there was in West Africa again because the vaccine is like is great. That's yeah. so great. Yeah. Wow. How now that you've been away from it for a while, how do you look back on that experience? Like, when you reflect, like, yeah, um, uh, it's good and bad. I mean, it it's strange to say, but for me, like professionally, it was huge because I got my foot in the door doing disaster response. And now like I can do so much more of that if I want to. Um, and it really prepared me well for COVID and, um, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. It was, it's just a huge part of who I am. Um, but yeah, but I also think I, didn't kind of realize how traumatic it was until COVID hit, which is like five years later. Um, and like watching it all go down in my own country, I just didn't realize what the Sierra Leonean nurses were going through until I watched it happen to my country. And I didn't have an escape route. <laughs> I couldn't just be like, cool, I'm done dealing with this. I'm going to go home where this virus isn't. And I was like, Oh no. <laughs> right. And my city is the epicenter. Um, yeah. So I just, I don't, it wasn't until I started like going to therapy because COVID 
I wasn't really handling COVID well, then my therapist was like, maybe that was a really traumatic experience. Because <laughs> um, I just didn't really think of it as, I was like, I didn't, it didn't, I didn't catch Ebola. Like I didn't have to lose anyone I loved. Like I saw some awful stuff, but I just didn't think of it as traumatic for me, which now I'm like, of course that was traumatic. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Watching the U.S. go down that path, I have just felt the entire time, like, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. I know what's coming. Like we're going to get to a situation where people are dying that have nothing to do with COVID because they can't get a hospital bed. Um, and here we are. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, that sounds, um, really hard and also very, very unique, you know, having, you know, I like you had the foresight and, um, having lived through it that a lot of us didn't, um, yeah, it was beyond our worst yeah. imagined fears. I mean, even having seen it at the beginning, like of COVID, when we had that first patient in January, I was like, this won't spread, won't be a problem in the US. I was still of that mindset that like, it won't happen here. Um, of course that was before we knew it was, you know, contagious before you were symptomatic, which is a huge, you know, game changer, but yeah, you just get into this mindset that somehow we're different and we're special and it won't happen to us, which is clearly not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's so crazy to think like that virus was out. I mean, I've read that people think it was out in the United States in like October, November of 2019. Yeah. It's like I don't know. hard to know, right? Yeah. Hard to know. Yeah. Um, back to ebola um or and also sort of that like disaster response experience do you have like would you do a disaster response again yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i love it i for me it's a sweet spot because i got into doing global health work and didn't kind of realize what a mess it is and how often you can cause harm despite like really good intentions um in that a lot of these like medical missions which that term rubs me the wrong way but a lot of these medical missions that you know I was definitely part of teams that would like oh we go down to wherever um every year and you know set up a free clinic and treat people for a week or two and then we go home and you feel like you're doing this great good and then you know once discussions about this start happening and you kind of do it a few times, you're like, what good am I really doing here? You know, we're kind of create, we're creating a dependence on um, foreign healthcare workers to come and do this work. And, and the local community is putting off care until the white people come because they assume we're better. And we're kind of, you know, bolstering that idea by like, we'll come down here every year and save you. And, you know, so you're, you're undermining the local health workers and you're not really, you're just creating a parallel health system when really what we should be doing is like helping the local health system get built up. Um, right. So yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, health work, like that I global health work that I had done started to kind of rub me the wrong way. It's really hard to find an organization that's doing it ethically and sustainably. Um, and it's not kind of like doing this white savior thing. Um, but disaster like true disaster response is kind of a spot where it's like 
these countries, these places really, truly need help. They need bodies. It's a disaster. It's an emergency. Like they do need people to come and do hands-on work now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Ebola was like that to an extreme, like, you know, so, um, so it's definitely an area that like, that you're able to kind of go for a shorter term, do hands-on work, which I like doing, and you're still not, you're not causing a problem. There, there's its own problems for sure. And you need to make sure you're not doing a, like a right. Haiti earthquake situation where like everybody pours in and then you're just sucking off the local community and like creating more of a problem. Um, but, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, um, I, I love doing it. Um, and without having to move to another country or do like, like doctors without borders takes people for like nine months assignments. And I'm like, I'm not really, I don't really want to go for nine months. So disaster response is kind of a nice way to, you know, do some of that. Yeah. I would love to get involved with like the disaster response yeah. situation. I think it's so, it sounds really fun and also meaningful. And, um, how many total have you gone on? Um, I was, well, I mean, I've been on a bunch of different, like global health works stuff. I think really disaster response would be, uh, Sierra Leone. And I was in Nepal after the earthquake, which was an absolute example of like, we're doing more harm than good. <laughs> um, oh, man, now I'm going to have to be back on the show to talk about that. <laughs> it's, funny. it's not a fascinating story. Like okay. it, it was more like we really wanted to help, but well, interestingly, oh, I could talk about this forever. Interestingly, since then, my understanding is, um, I don't know if it's run through the world, world health organization or what government body or, organizes this, but when there's a disaster, they're supposed to like all these uh, global health organizations are supposed to like put together a proposal or an application and like they send them to the um, Ministry of Health of that country. And they're like, these are all, these are the 50 organizations that want to come, pick the ones you want. And then they get invited to come is my understanding of how it works now. Whereas in like Haiti after the earth, earth, the big earthquake years ago, Nepal after the earthquake in 2015, like everybody just descended. Like I just got on a plane. They were like, just get on a plane and we'll figure it out. Um, and it's chaos. And like, there's not enough, there, there's, there's like too many people. And there's like, I remember we got there on day one, they, we like had to go to a local pharmacy and we're buying meds. And I was like, but don't like, they need, they, the Kathmandu needs those meds for the Kathmandu hospitals and the patients in Kathmandu that are, that are, that are harmed or ill. Like you should be bringing your own supplies. Otherwise you're just like sucking off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have all 50 organizations come in and they all go to the local pharmacies and buy all the meds and then they peace out to like the, you know, rural areas. Like, eh. anyway, it's a whole, it's a thing. Um, so yeah, I think those are the two. And then I, and then now more recently I'm uh, involved with an organization called Pronto that is, um, OB specialty. They do, um, this is the other, the other end of, in my opinion, there's like another way of to do like more sustainable, um, good in global health. And that's like training. You should be training local healthcare. If you're there in a disaster or in an emergency and you need to do hands-on, yes, do that. And if you're not, if you're there in a more long-term capacity, non-emergency capacity, you should be training local healthcare workers so that eventually you're making yourself obsolete. Your goal with any global health work is should be to like get to a point where you don't come back <laughs> like these ones that are like we'll be here every year forever is like no that's not the goal um so yeah this organization called pronto does um simulation based training for obstetric emergencies so like most places i've been in the developing world like nursing school is kind of rote memorization and you do whatever the doctor tells you and 
there's not a whole lot of critical thought and generalizing broad, broadly here, but, mm-hmm. um, so the, the, so Pronto goes in and trains staff in hospitals for how to like run a simulation, which is not something that's often done in a lot of these places. And they've got, you know, fake blood and a baby that you deliver. And like, it's a whole, it's like, you're really, you feel like you're in an emergency when you're doing these, um, these sims. And so they train the, um, local staff how to do that and how to train others to do it. And, um, it's really, really awesome program. And, and it, exactly. They, you know, like their India program is completely independent and functioning, you know, separately from anything to do with the U S leadership now and running on their own and, um, uh, problems Kenya is, uh, getting to the same place. And so it's really, really cool. So that's what I'm hoping to get out to do. Um, and then, I mean, disaster response is kind of, kind of, I haven't done anything since COVID because it's hard to weigh the, it's very hard to weigh the benefits between like, is it worth it to go and like be worried about spreading COVID in a vulnerable community? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard to, it's really, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I am concerned like as travel starts up again about like all these volunteerism and medical missions and everything starting back up. I'm like hoping this is an opportunity for people to think more critically about what they're doing and why they're doing it and the impact that they have, but see. Mm. Very awesome. I, if someone wanted to get involved in disaster response, you did mention a few of the organizations like Doctors Without Borders and also Partners in Health. Where else could folks go? I mean, I understand you need, yeah. you need to get, get in and do learn the ropes before you go some, you know, get it. It's a long game for sure. That's what I've found. Like, and it's messy because no one, as I mentioned, no one wants to No, you're not going to get on. I mean, I can't, I've applied to doctors without borders and they have said no. And I, not that I'm (laughs) like amazing, but I have a lot of experience. Um, so yeah, you're not going to get, unfortunately, you're not going to get hired on by, most of these really legit organizations, um, unless you have some experience um, working in healthcare, volunteering in healthcare overseas in like limited resource settings. And it's really hard to get that experience without working with some organizations that are a little iffy. Sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. A little like, I don't like how this feels. This isn't sustainable. This isn't ethical. Um, and that's a problem in this like industry. Um, and I don't have a solution to that. I'll, I mean, that's how I got into this and, and not on purpose. Like I didn't say, oh, I don't care. I'm going to do, I just didn't know at the start. And the more and more like medical missions I went on, the more and more I was like, oh, I don't think this is good. I don't think this is a good system. Um, but then I already had some experience and I could, you know, every time, every time I went was like a step up in, you know, the legitimacy of the organizations I was able to apply with. Um, but I have written a, like a massive post on my blog about because I was getting this question all the time um about like how to go about it if you really want to do this and like um so it's it's a beast it's long <laughs> but I'll, um, I'll link it up yeah um I'll send it to you um but it has a lot of tips I mean really depending on I think a lot of it is so much research at the beginning and just really honing in on what you really want to do do you want to do disaster response do you want to do long-term development work where you'd be willing to move somewhere? Um, do you want to do training? Do you want like, um, and, and if you have somewhere you want to go, um, it's hugely helpful to learn the language. Like you're not getting in with Doctors Without Borders 
at least MSF US nowadays, unless you speak French. Um, like, yeah, because <laughs> it's... Je parle français. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, truly, right. truly. And they want you, I mean, the, the last time I applied, they were taking newcomers for nine months minimum first assignments. They want you, they want to know your spirit. I think it's a misconception with Doctors Without Borders. I think in a lot of um, circles, Doctors Without Borders is like an umbrella word for medical missions, but like they're a specific group. They're very serious with the best of the best. Your assignments are like six to nine months long. You go to the hardest places in the world. Um, people I know that are very, very tough people have been like, have been like nearly broken working for MSF because they go to really hard places. Um, so yeah, that's the MSF is like the end end top goal. You're, you're not getting in there unless you have a lot of experience and um, language skills. And, and um, I think another misconception with Doctors Without Borders is you won't be doing hands-on work that you will be hired in like management or training capacity. They don't hire expat staff to like do clinical work because they are very focused on hiring local staff. Um, so well, that yeah. seems like a great model. Yeah, it is. As much to, I mean, of course, you know, those of us in healthcare, they're like, well, we want to go and we yeah. want to be the hands, but that's like, it's that's, not necessary. They it's not necessary. Nurses. There's not a shortage of nurses. Um, except in very yeah. specific situations like Ebola. Ebola was one of the very strange situations where they were like, we need bodies. We need just human bodies who know how to don and doff and give IV meds. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's very unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is really, you've just given us a wealth of information. I'm so <laughs> grateful. I'm just curious. These, these are volunteer positions, right? Not paid? Mostly. Ebola was... The first time I got paid because it's dangerous. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're risking your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Paid. Uh, it was, I remember being like, you're going to pay me? <laughs> um, I got paid and like they provided housing, like the nicest housing I've ever had during volunteer center. I was like, oh my God. Um, but but that situation was like, you know, you're hot and in a very uncomfortable situation all day. So they really needed us to be, it sounds so over the top, but they, they, they needed us to be in air conditioning at night. Like you have to cool down. Like there was one night in that tent camp where we started where the, they did have AC in the, in these big like military style tents, but the AC broke. And so I was like in, in my suit in 90 degrees all day. And then it was like, you know, hot, hot, hot all night. I just remember being like laying naked on my cot. And I was like, I have to cool down. Like I can't be at this temperature. Oh my gosh. 24 hours straight. Like I just can't do it. Um, anyway. Yeah. So they were like, they needed, I mean, there was that situation was a legit situation where like you needed to be in air conditioning and have food provided and stuff like that. Cause you had to keep your, you know, you had to keep your strength up and your mind right for like the work. Um, but there are other scenarios where I'm like, why are the expats living in a mansion when all the local staff are like, you know, not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right. getting paid a, like a fraction of what the expat staff are getting You know. Um, yeah, I didn't want a tangent. What did you What did you ask me? Uh, oh, was it paid? But that's okay. Yeah. Oh yes. yeah. Normally not paid. It. Normally no. Um, Normally no. Until you get to the, like the top, um, like health like development organizations like Doctors Without Borders pays and provides health uh, health um, health insurance. Um, most of the time, like. IMC does, Partners in Health does. And these are, you, again, Ebola was such a 
specific situation, but usually if you're going to get paid, you're going to be going on a longer stint for like six months. Usually short-term stuff is not paid. Sometimes they'll pay for like um, your room and board or maybe your airfare, but they're not giving you a salary or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was really fun. Um, so I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody else did. Um, it was, yeah, really insightful to learn about your experience. Um, and I know there was a lot that we didn't even talk about, but, um, I, uh, truly appreciate it. Um, I just think it's so awesome that you heeded the call and you're like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I want to go with that, you know, but, um, just so, so cool. Emily, you're so fun to talk to and such a pleasure. Um, any closing thoughts for today's show? Um, I think, what did I say? Same as I said last time, everybody take care of yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Your own oxygen mask on first. That's been my motto ever since Sierra Leone. It's still my motto during COVID. And that means like mental health as well. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of, um, I just wanted to reiterate something that you said, which I think is so important. There are no true emergencies in the pandemic. So I agree with you on that. So yeah. don't rush into anybody's rooms um, yeah. without protecting yourself. Um, Cause yeah. yeah. You can only yeah. do what you can do. And it's not, it's certainly not us as nurses. It's not your fault that I know in a lot of places, including my hospital, that you have more patients than you can safely care for. You can, you know, like you're not, a superhero, you know, that's not your fault that we are in this shitty situation and that people are dying. that don't have to, like, you can only do what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. That's right. Put your oxygen mask on first. Yep. Take care of yourselves. Yep. And as always, I'm going to close this one out by saying, stay safe and stay sane. And we'll see you on the next one. <laughs> see you um, in another two weeks. I'm just going to keep coming back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.